Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are, breakfast somewhere. So eat up. Welcome to breakfast with Vinny. Food for thought. Take it easy. Take it easy. And they love us already, David. Man. So today's a special, special, special day for me. Um, I'm not even going to begin going on this curriculum vitae to introduce this man. Um, <laughs> it speaks for itself. Um, he's probably penned more hits than I have grass in my yard. Um, a consummate producer, performer, composer, arranger, someone who has made an indelible impact on the music industry, the great David Foster. Hey. <laughs> Welcome. Hey. Thank you, David. That was a great introduction. And I want to say before we get started, although we are started, and I'll only say this once, okay? <clears throat> I wanted to do this podcast for many reasons, but you know, I bugged you actually to do it because if somebody could say, uh, pick one drummer for the rest of your life, it could only be one, it would be you. You are the greatest, in my opinion, the greatest living drummer ever and the nicest guy. I'm not going to say it again from here on. I'm going to pretend you're not a drummer. You're not a musician. You're not anybody except a guy interviewing me. But I have to get that out front because otherwise I'll keep saying it throughout the interview. I, I, I just marvel and always am honored in your presence. So, but we're done with that. Well, no more. Okay. Well, I, I've just got to, I'm speechless and I, I can't. We're done. Enough. <laughs> done. I mean... <laughs> Uh, otherwise, I'm gonna blush. You're just you're just an interviewer now, to me. I'm an interviewer now, and I'm just gonna blush and cry. And, yeah, yeah. So, did music, you, you know, come to you, or did you go to music? What what made you want to be a musician? I'm gonna start there. Sure, and you know, uh, my now that my two year old son is playing the drums, and we'll talk about that probably. But and I see uh, what I'm trying to do to inspire him, and then I realize that my father, who was a amateur uh, piano player does not what he did for a living, but he was a really good uh, stride piano player. And he was very patient with me. And I think he led me to the piano at a very early age, you know, maybe age three or four. And then I discovered that I had perfect pitch. And then so my parents was, oh, well, he's got something. So let's dig in. And, and it's, a, it's a common story of, you know, they didn't have any money, but somehow they found enough money to get me, you know, 25 cent lessons at age five. And, and uh, also my father would come home, drag himself home from work and spend that time at the piano showing me stride stride things and it was you know invaluable uh didn't feel like it at the time but it's proved to be invaluable oh absolutely did you so after the stride did you just jump right into classical i did and it was some it was a mandate for my parents and um i liked it for a while and then uh i did it for eight years but there was always these things brewing and i realized that i the reason i really didn't like it was because I didn't like playing other people's music. And so to this day, if you and I are in a bar and somebody shouts out, hey, do whatever in the key, I can't do it because I, I have no repertoire, really, of other people's music because I I would, I would preferred to write my own music, good and bad. Um, so by age 13, I was pretty much done with the classical, but what a great training it, ground it was to give me that so that I could write for an orchestra and I could understand the orchestra. And I've used an orchestra on most of my records yeah absolutely and and then you you probably got exposed to jazz playing as well i'm sure i mean the stride obviously was a was an open door you, you yeah. kick open for the jazz thing I, I would imagine came later yeah yeah and so the jazz thing is funny and uh i will reference you again because uh i had two great things happen more in my life musically while i was uh formulating one was a great band teacher who allowed me to choose, uh, pick a different instrument every three months. And so in three months, I would play the clarinet, then the oh, the bassoon, and then the trombone, and then the uh, the baritone. And, and I never got really good at any of them, but it gave me a working knowledge of all the instruments. And I even at three months, I was as good as the other kids, or maybe even a little better. Not great, but enough to have a working knowledge. So there was that. And then there was a friend of mine who indoctrinated me into the world of jazz, a great guy named Rick Reynolds, who was a really good bass player, upright bass player, 
hard to find in Victoria, British Columbia, where I grew up on an island. Um, you know, you, had, you ordered an album, you had to wait three months for it to come. But he sat me down every Saturday for, it seemed like years, and he would say, this is Bill Evans, this is Keith Jarrett, and this is Vince Guaraldi, and this is, then he'd go deeper, uh, this is Thelonious Monk, and, and, and this is Denny Zeitlin, and this is, uh, you know, and he would go deep, deep, deep to things that I, and I'd, I really acquired my taste for jazz, and it's why I've loved jazz to this day. But here's the catch. And this requires no response from you. Um, I loved it. I just wasn't good at it. And so I have a great understanding of it. But I realized early on, like the classical thing, I just wasn't going to be good enough. And so, but again, it gave me the opportunity to, you know, with my buddies Jay and, and Bill to write a song like After the Love is Gone, which is sort of, you know, it's Bill Evans' changes disguised. Um, and so it gave me that foundation and I have a great love of jazz. I just can't do it, but it's okay. You know, I have enough. Well, I have enough. okay. I mean, you know, you can say that about yourself, but I, I was going to get to After the Love is Gone, one of the greatest songs ever written, you know, especially in pop history. I mean, that's it's it's just a, a masterclass. It's a masterpiece. Um, but, you know, without getting ahead of myself, I think that the training that you had, because you, you're talking about, about the extent of the classical training that you had and the, you know, the, the, the jazz exposure and yada, yada. Uh, and, you know, picking different instruments, it sounds to me that, that we're just talking about rock talent here and a prodigious talent because somehow all those things came together to the point where, I mean, we've, we've played together quite a bit and I've seen you on pretty hairy red light moments where your confidence is so unshakable and it's what you play is so accurate uh you know and and you 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 just read these things down for the occasion accurate for the occasion well but it it's i've seen it on many occasions and yeah. whenever the light goes on you're just there there's no nothing it's just immovable there's no hint of anxiety there's no hint of of any kind of trepidation or or you know um it's just you're going to do this and that's that and yeah and it all it's and so so you know again i i kind of wanted to ease into this but 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 you know what i've seen is i, I want to know how you developed or how that mindset came along because uh, you know i've worked with you many times as a producer yeah you know you of you being a producer and and it's it's so you're so you you get the job done so efficiently that like for example you know i remember one time we were we were doing a, a michael buble record out at, at your studio and you know i i was gonna punch a part mm -hmm. and uh before mm -hmm. i could even find the bar number you guys were already there punching and you're like where were you you know and i thought i was fast you guys were you were already there i mean and so you know that whole you know ultra uber efficiency and that that mindset of you just being able to sort of you know it's kind of like uh, it's almost like someone who who either you know was was brought up in a certain way or someone who had or someone who had training like nlp training or it's like yeah. Tony Robbins stuff. You know what I mean? Like, how do you cultivate that that unflappable ability to just do stuff, bam, efficiently? It's, a, it's such a fantastic question, and yeah. it makes me want to think. I've never seen anything like it. Well, I appreciate that, and it makes me think deeply, and I can only attribute it to, <clears throat> excuse me, um, my upbringing. You know, my parents were amazing, and they supported me, and and my parents, I have six. I have six sisters, incredible uh, sisters, all of them. Um, my parents always made me feel special, and I guess that's a gift unto itself, you know. Like I don't want to go as far as to say you can do anything you want, you can, you know. But they always made me feel special, which I guess translates to confidence. And um, I probably like you when we were kids, reading the back of album covers, going, "Man, one day, one day, I'm going to sit in the studio with Hal Blaine." I'm going to know Larry Nectil. I'm going to know these guys. I, I, I want to be one of them because I think I'm good enough to be one of them. And so, you know, the trajectory, that path just sort of 
gets a life of its own. In fact, when I'm when I'm giving little lectures at at colleges, you know, and universities, like music classes, mm-hmm. first thing I say is, and I'm getting, I'm whining, I'm going sideways a little bit, but um, first thing I say is, anybody that puts up their hand and says, "How can I be a record producer?" is never going to be one. You can't ask the question, right? I never asked that of anybody. Did you ever ask anybody how you could be a drummer? Never. Did you ever ask anybody how you could do a podcast? Maybe the technical stuff, but no. It just one foot in front of the other, and the path is clear, and the goalpost keeps moving. Always, you got to move the goalpost. Always. Okay. So, so you, but but as I recall, I mean, because you were in the session scene before I was. I mean, I I didn't get to L.A. till. I moved there in the in the spring of '78, and and I was on the road uh, for a couple of years with Frank Zappa, and you know I was, I got to the point where I just thought, well, you know, I, I can't get arrested, you know, on my time off. I want to do other stuff, and 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 I, I wanted to do dates. I wanted to be a studio player because, um, first of all, it was really about the idea of playing a lot of different kinds of music with a lot of different kinds with a lot of different people and documenting it it was to me it really meant something special because it was going to be documented forever and yeah i liked a lot of different things so so i ended up starting doing that maybe in late 79 early 80 but but you you were at i mean i was done by then i was done yeah although i remember i i was lucky enough to be on some sessions where you came in, I, I, I think I'm trying to remember if it was a, uh, I, I can't remember which record it was now, but 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 I saw it uh, a couple of times. And maybe some uh, drill records or no, it no. was something that um, maybe it was Peter Allen or something. It could have yeah. been, yeah. This yeah. was re- early on, like early '88. Yeah, so I was producing and playing by then. Right. You know, I always did on my own productions. Okay. But I, but I only really did sessions from '76 to '79, um, and then I, 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 but during those three years, they were again formidable because um, I looked in, through the glass, you know, and I would see these producers, and I, I loved the good ones and I loved the bad ones for different reasons. The good ones, obviously, you can learn from. But I learned more from the bad ones. It's like, wow, that's dumb. Like, why would you ever do that? And I'm not a snob when it comes to producers. I think there's some great, great record producers that can't play an instrument, don't really know music, can't read music. That's fine. I don't care about that. I think that the only um, quality that you have to have to be a great record producer is you have to have a great love of music and you have to have the people's taste. Other than that, doesn't matter the fact that I can play and write and arrange, you know, do all that fancy stuff. It doesn't that doesn't alone make me a great record producer. But the choices you make is what makes you a great record producer. So in those three years, when I was a studio musician, um, I learned a lot from the bad producers, the ones that were just like they were useless. They were just useless. Yeah, it taught what? you what what not to do right away and. And I'm sure wow. you just had to sort of just say, okay, you're producing, I'm going to play, so I'm staying out of it, right? For the most part. But then I was young and cocky, and I'm sure I got arrogant. But more, more than arrogant, I probably took over a lot of sessions, you know, like if the producer would say, hey, do you want an intro? Yeah, I'll give you an intro. I mean, I'll give you whatever you want, and and that's part of being a studio musician, right? You just give and give. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's there's famous stories about you saving songs like that. And, uh, you know, we need an intro called David Foster. We need someone to save this song called David Foster. So, you know, a lot about Ray Parker. I mean, for a classic example of, uh, you know, Hey, just play a little riff here. And it was dan 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 And he never got songwriting credit for it. And it became a huge thing, you know, but, but that was back in that time. And even earlier, it was sort of, that was happening a lot where, I mean, like the wrecking crew, Carol Kane, all these people were coming up with these these little lines and hook hooky things that really were became signature parts of the songs that they probably it was their job. Yeah. I yeah. mean it's a tough it's a tough thing. How do you how do you deal with publishing with that? It's a it's a yeah. tough area. I have a question for you though, Vinny, because um Frank Zapp, Frank Zappa has always fascinated me and I I did see him live once yeah. and I believe uh 
Ralph Humphreys was playing drums with him at that point, and George Duke. Was that before your time or after your time? It was before me. Before you? Yeah. So can you just briefly summarize, you probably talked about it ad nauseum on your podcast, but just summarize who he was and what what kind of a musician he was? He, you know, honestly, I've kind of come up with, a, <clears throat> excuse me, to me, it was like it, it was it was like boot camp meets Juilliard meets Comedy Central. That's that's what it was, and wow. and it was a whirlwind like that for two and a half years that I did it, and he was really, you know, again one of those people that somehow really knew how to sort of, you know, like a drill sergeant, but but in a good way because it really kept you on your toes. He would, I mean, we would rehearse for eight hours a day for three months before we went on a tour. And, um, you know, he would try things and then change them and try them and change them. And we would have to remember these revisions. And so it exercised that muscle and, and really got us paying attention in a lot of ways. Um, and we had to read really well and all that it was, stuff. Yeah, was it annoying at times? No, it wasn't. It was, I, it, to me, it was like a big adventure, you know? Yeah. So, cause I, I loved it. I loved all that sort of thing. Uh, it was exciting. I wanted to just play and be challenged and just, you know, push myself and, and, and it just ticked all those boxes. And, uh, yeah. and, you know, I, I liked it also because, you know, he had that, that whole comedic satirical element to him that was really, was really funny, you know? So, so yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell what it was like. But I mean, I, that's a, that's a thing I'd be jealous of to have spent a little time <laughs> with Frank just to sit at his knees. At his, at his feet, just listen to him talk. Because I've seen interviews with him. He's just, he's like a professor, you know. He's yeah, just, he's, he is. And he was, he's a really smart guy. And, um, yeah. and you know, and he, he was really into composing and being a serious composer. And, and I think that, you know, he he may not have been recognized even posthumously as, as much as he probably should be. Um, but but he loved all that. He loved, you know, Edgar Varese and Stockhausen and Stravinsky and, you know what yep. I mean? So those were like his heroes. And um, so, yeah, that's kind of in well, a nutshell. But, but well, you know, but I want to just back to the whole producers thing, because, I mean, you know, <laughs> so, so so you talked about Frank and it, it just reminded me of of how he was very, very matter of fact and boom, 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 got things done. And then I meet you and I work with you and it was the same thing. It was like very efficient, fast, yeah. well-oiled efficiency machine. So... You know, and and it's interesting because I would think to myself, well, you know, I I I wonder why more producers can't do that, you know. And I understand also the whole idea of like, you know, for me when I started doing dates, it was just one two-inch machine and the arranger was in the room and everybody was in the same room and time was money and you had to read it and play it down and next. So you know, it, it, you know, I got into reading and boom, 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 and, you know, getting that muscle of coming up with the right part right away. And to the point where, you know, I started traveling and doing sessions in other places, I'd be like, where's the chart? And they're like, what do you mean? What chart? We're learning this. So I'm like, oh, you know, I'm back, back into this, this whole thing of they're, they're taking their time. And, you know, over, over, over the, over the years, I sort of saw the difference between those kind of situations where, maybe you want to do that, you know, because you've got this unmolded lump of clay and other times where, you know, you don't want to do that for the most part because, you know, this is not that kind of thing. You, you got to make decisions fast. And I think that, that, um, you know, I think, I think a lot of the things that I saw was that there were producers who, um, who were kind of trying to do that sort of creative let's just find something you know and just beat it to death when when really you know they went past it way far, yeah. far past it to the point yeah. where i you know i would start thinking you know you you went way past it you're burning us out and um I, yeah you know what i mean i don't well the efficiency again yeah thing uh, you've got me thinking now about my childhood yeah as a, i've never ever ever thought about this before or never discussed it with anybody, not that it's private, but, you know, uh, seven kids, a working father, uh, no money, but we weren't poor sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Big treat once a month would be fish and chips. 
and but we were get we were given like you know one third of one piece of fish each, not because my parents were trying to starve us, it was just that's all that there was. And then my mother would maybe give me like another third, you know. And it's like maybe that efficiency that I learned as a kid from my parents, maybe that drifted into my into my uh, record making world. But I'm not that guy, and never was. <clears throat> That wants excess on my tape. Ta I say tape; it's not really tape now, but of course now with with Pro Tools now you can have as many tracks as you want. But I never was that guy. Who was like, hey, let's do three guitar solos, and I'll pick later. No, we're gonna figure it out right now. Let's try another drummer, a different approach, but I'll pick later. Never. I don't want to. I was lean and mean always, like every single time. There's no excess fat on the tape, so. And that meant that sometimes I probably missed out on some cool stuff, right? But for the most part, 95% or 90%, I knew what I wanted. I got what I wanted and I didn't need anything else. Making records is not a democracy. Sorry to say. It's just not. Well said. Well said. And, and you know, did you miss out on stuff? Who knows? That's so hypothetical. Yes. Oh. And, and, you know, because you, you can go on the other, uh, the other way where, you know, I've seen, you know, when, when it was tape, like 30 reels of tape, you know, on one song and as if they're going to pick the take out and, and go back and forth and go, oh, you know, uh, put that other reel on. I think uh, take two versus take 70. It, yeah. just, it wasn't going to happen. Yeah. I, I can't but see how Vinny, I will say about our dear friend, my dear friend and your friend too, Jay Graydon was an exception. I think you probably worked for him, right? Yeah. Jay liked to beat the hell out of everybody. Yeah. We talked about, laugh yeah. about it. Steve Lukather and Jay Graydon and I had dinner actually a couple of weeks ago, right before my surgery, and, and it was just so much fun, and we laughed about it. And he did beat everybody up, including me, because I was a piano player on those Al Jarreau records and the Man End Transfer, and I was a co-writer, but he was the producer. Um, and he beat the hell out of us, but the results were so amazing. I didn't know half the time what he was looking for, but those records, I, I think anyway, are just- Yeah. Well, he knew what he wanted. Yeah, but Which well, a big difference between someone who is really doesn't. Yeah. They're just kind of, you know, there's no. Yeah, they're going to tell the difference when when it was first possible to do any kind of sound on sound or punching in or overdubbing or fixing or any of that. The first people that apparently from I read this somewhere that jumped on it were classical musicians. They couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to go. Really? Yeah. I mean, I would have never thought that. I would have thought. They would have been the ones to just top to bottom, right? You know. Yeah. But I was reading in some some tape op magazine or some one of those sort of, um, and uh, they were citing examples where they would say, "No, you know, it should be here, and I should detune this, and you know, for this, really? no, this note should be, yeah." And I thought that really surprised me because I would have. Me too, but yeah. you know, those purists. Geez. Yeah, yeah. It is, it is. Have you? I mean, you know. What what was what was some of the most memorable things that that you've done production wise that you're you really 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 feel proud of? I mean, this is a tough one because I think you know in your case it's I have a feeling that that it's you know it's always sort of you just have an open mind and you just do your thing and it's always at that level. But there's got to be something that's really dear to your heart in that regard. Um, I would say that the yeah it's, uh, again another great question. I would say that. Probably, in my opinion, the most perfect record, or close to perfect, that I produced was uh, a song for Chicago called um, um, Hard Habit to Break. And um, it's just for me, I just thought that, you know, all the, all the, everything came together in that record with the drumming. And, you know, you remember Danny Serafin, of course. And uh, I think Michael Landau played guitar. And maybe it was Michael Thompson. Gosh, I don't want to get that wrong. Um, that record for me, but also there's those moments to stick out, like I will always love you with Whitney, which, you know, I realize that has made an indelible mark on society, um, taking a little country tune and, and turning it all around and having that in my head was, was kind of cool. My time with Earth, Wind & Fire was absolutely invaluable. I mean, <clears throat> Maurice White, and I know you know those guys, um, Maurice was, uh, like a god to me, still oh, is. Yeah, he we missed a lot. Right. Yeah. No. I. 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 Um. It was funny because I played on on one track on Maurice's solo record, and and um, I, I don't know how it came it came to my attention, but 
but I, I just went, oh yeah. And I, and I was so honored by that. I went and bought the vinyl recently just so I could have the record. Yeah. I wanted to have it as like, you know, a kind of hard memento of it, but yeah, yeah. But, but carry on. You yeah. The, I mean, Maurice, you the drummer too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He played drums on Can't I Love, he, which is pretty astounding. Wow. I didn't yes. know that. Yes, he did. Oh, Lewis Ramsey Lewis thing that he had, you know? Oh yeah. And you know, production wise, Vinny, Maurice, uh, stands alone as the only producer. I never met Phil Spector, but Maurice to me stands alone. Yeah. The only record producer that the more stuff he puts on the track, the better it gets. The rest of us slobs <laughs> try to cover it up. Like, oh, the more guitar part might help that. Oh, let's go add a tambourine. That's going to make it better for yeah, her. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And or it doesn't. Cowbell. Yeah. Right. Maurice, listen to the extravagance and the uh, luxuriousness of the overdubs that he puts on there with just the, you know, 10 tracks of percussion. And, you know, uh, again, no waste. He knew what he was doing. But the more he put on, the better those records got. It's amazing. I listen to him over and over, and it's just probably my favorite band. You know, they just yeah. make me feel good all the time. Yeah, and Verdine the war. You know, Verdine is the bass player. You oh, know, forget picks it. notes that no other bass player would pick. Amazing. No other bass player would pick. Well, who does a who does a major third against a minor chord? Like nobody. <laughs> but Maurice told me. He said, "Hey, buddy." There's no wrong notes. There's just good notes and bad notes. Amazing. Right, right? Amazing. Wow. So so after the love is gone, you co-wrote that, right? Was that no. was that something that was you know, uh, did it kind of come easy with 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 the collaboration that you did or was it sort of mm. you know? It's it's a funny enough story that I'll I'll take 1 minute to tell it. Yeah. I was in uh, Barry Gordy's office. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um and I, sorry, I should note for your listeners and your uh, viewers that I just had back surgery two and a half weeks ago, so I'm like squirming and coughing and blah blah blah. But uh, doing great, man. Happy to be here. Anyway, I was in Barry Gordy's office, and I had just produced my very first record. Uh, an artist named J.P. Morgan. She was a somewhat of a singer, but more of a TV personality. But you know, nobody was asking me to produce. Mm -hmm. and she did. And uh, we had like a $5,000 budget or something. Mm -hmm. uh, anyway, and I was hyping the record to him, playing him some songs. He was like, oh, I don't know, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, do you have any more songs? And I was like, yeah, actually. And I went to the piano. May God kill me this second if I'm not telling the truth. I went to the piano without a notion of what I was going to play. And the entire chorus of After the Love Is Gone fell out. Wow. Even most of the lyrics. Or at least ha the lyric, the lyric line. I just went and oh, after the and and Barry Gordy was like, "Holy jeez, what is that?" And then it turns out there was a friend of mine who got it to Maurice White, and well, well of course I went to Jay Graydon and huh. built, finished, the, did the lyrics. <laughs> Jay helped me with the rest of the song, and uh, it was a great job. <laughs> That's like a legendary yeah. story. It's like the gift, magical stuff. I mean, yeah, it's legendary. Through you. I mean, through you and not from you. Yeah, it's epic. Yeah. Epic. Amazing. I have no idea. I mean, you... And also, that. sorry, before you ask your next question, oh. that first album that I produced, again, this was a little before your time, otherwise you would have played on it for sure, but <laughs> probably 1978, mm -hmm. um, uh, I got all the cats. I got Harvey Mason. I got Jeff Picaro. I got David Hungate. I got uh, Dave, all the cats. Wow. And I mistakenly had not learned enough about producing records, contrary to what I was saying about all I thought I had learned while watching the producers, but I thought that getting great tracks was making a great record. And of course it's not. Those, that J.P. Morgan album is full of great tracks, but the songs weren't that good. And without great songs, you fail. So it was a very important lesson to me. Turd polishing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we, I mean, as session sausages, lunch meats, we did, plenty of tart polishing and yeah. yeah it's all about the song but but i've seen records too where yeah. i remember i mean you know it, it, it it's it's probably marketing and promotion i remember doing this record you remember charlie colello sure a ranger yeah so we were doing this record with uh for bill medley from the righteous brothers right 
and it was a song and um i can't remember who wrote it but it was gosh anyway i don't want to misquote it was great song right and so charlie charlie was saying we recorded the track and the track came out great it was a great song bill sang it great of course and he goes record this record can't miss it can't miss you know he was so (laughs) confident and but and guess what and we thought yeah this is yeah man this is bonafide hit i mean wow what a great song you know not crickets crickets go figure why you know so yeah but that's record company machinery and and all that sort of stuff and how they time things and what they chose to promote and it's it's you know i've seen a lot of stuff like that where it's kind of sad where you think yeah this is really great people are going to love this and nothing especially when um you apply all the same principles to your work that you did for three albums before that and the last three albums were hits and then you try it again it's like it's a stiff you're like god what did i do wrong i I did everything the way i've always done it yeah but you were talking david about you know um just knowing what the people like so as as a producer and so you i mean we often talk about that like having your finger on the trigger and the temperature but it's not really the same as second guessing it's kind of an idea of of what what you what what is the difference between second guessing them and just knowing what they like and and how does pleasing yourself fitting in fit into that like there's so many people say oh you know I, i've got to please myself first and you know you know what i'm saying how does that whole soup mix together you know yeah i saw rick rubin say that in an interview just recently that he makes records for himself uh, um i i my answer is <clears throat> that I'm not an elitist. If I was a great jazz musician or a great classical player, I'd be so wrapped up in all that, I might not be able to think like the average person. Mm -hmm. The reason why I knew that Celine Dion was gonna be a big star is when I first saw her in a tent singing in Quebec uh, when she was like 18, Mm -hmm. I I just looked at her and I went, millions of people are gonna love this voice. I just know it. When I saw Bugle bounce out at a wedding, when the shark bites, you know, this wedding singer, right? It's like, oh my God, the world stopped again. It's like, I know that people, millions of people are going to love this because that slot is available right now. Bobby Darren's dead. Sinatra doesn't make records anymore. Blah, blah, blah. On and on and list. Mm-hmm. Bublé could fill all those slots without being really e- any of them. So the fact that, that I feel I'm, I'm just the average Joe. I really do. I feel like I'm an average person when it comes to, you know, if I like it, millions of people are going to like it. And of course, I'm wrong a lot too, but... Um, well, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> if I had to look at the times you were wrong, I'd, I'd, it would take me a while to pick. I'd probably be picking till the cows come home. So, but, yeah. but it's an amazing ability to have, you know, where you know you have that kind yeah. of instinct. And, and, you know, yeah, okay, okay. That's... I, think, I think with Josh Groban, though, uh, Vinny, um, I found him in high school. I think uh, I absolutely, I just willed him to happen. I willed it to happen because I, I, the first record, the first album that I made with him, I fantasized in my head that I was making an Andrea Bocelli record because Andrea had gotten to a point where he didn't want to make records like that anymore um, after him and I had worked together for quite a few years. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to try and find somebody else that sort of sings like Andrea and I'm going to make the record that Andrea doesn't want to make. And I did, and it, and it worked. You know, but I but I willed it by going to the record company. Said you've got to put this out record out now. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. You've got to do it. I just believed so hard that he was going to fill a slot. Amazing, yeah, amazing. And 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 voila, yeah, the big rest, star. Yeah, the rest is history. That's amazing. I uh, mean, I'm I'm going to throw a curveball at you. And I know this might sound a little gauche, but do you ever ever stop for a moment and kind of just go? dig me or are you so in the frame that you can't see the picture i am probably like well i can't imagine that you would ever feel this way but because of the way you play but i feel some days that i've done nothing that i've accomplished nothing nothing and other days i feel like i do exactly that i stop and i go all right i have a legacy but there's days when i feel like you know when i go to a party or something you sit down and play the piano and Hey, play your hits, and I bang out like, 
you know, eight or nine hits. And then I go, God, is that it? Is that my life? I mean, 50 years and that's all I got to show for it. So I don't know if that's that insecurity that you need to be successful or it's human nature or, I mean, I can't imagine there's one second when you ever didn't believe you were the greatest drummer ever. It couldn't be. Well, I, I don't know about the greatest, but I, I will say this. I don't, I don't know if there is. I, I've, I've had many bouts with insecurity myself. And, and, but, but, you know, one thing is that when I, when I moved to L.A., you know, it was sort of like all bets were off. I didn't have a plan B. It was like, this is it, do or die. And so, I, you know, I believed in myself, but I knew that I had enough of a skill set to back it up. So, yeah. you know, and, I, and of course, there's a lot of people that can play now, and there were a lot of people that can play then. There's, there's always, there's never been a shortage of talent, intellect, or brawn, you know. So, but it, it, still, to make that kind of move, you know, you, you, it's, it's a pretty major thing. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, and, and, you know, I too have gone through many insecure moments, but, but, you know, I think, I think, you know, after a while, and it may be easier to say this, at, you know, later on in your career, but after a while, you just kind of let go and just what, what come, what come, what, whatever will happen will happen. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, um, but can I ask you, Vinny, can I ask you who your uh, musical influences were when you were, you know, what we were talking about me at, at age 13 oh, and 10? Yeah. 15, were they drummers or were they piano players or were it they? Were, it was, it was, you know, songs and in idioms, like, like it was Beatles and Motown pretty much. Actually, before that, when I was little, I was listening to pop radio, like, you know, Bobby Darren and those people and just like reacting to music. But really, you know, when I was a kid, I remember seeing the Beatles and that was it. Ringo, yeah. I love Ringo. To this day, I love Ringo. Uh, he loves you too. Yeah. And, and the Beatles are, are it for me. So yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And and but why not? Je where where did this? Well, that came later. That came later when I was in around seventh grade. And I started taking lessons, and you know there was a good music program. And these band directors and people that were involved, they were kind of like jazz bows, you know. And so yeah. my friends that I met as well introduced me to it. And and one of the first things that I listened to was organ jazz, organ groups. For some reason, yeah. it was really kind of big and and. And I listened to that and I was listening to small and then big bands. Um, uh, yeah, because, you know, Buddy Rich and yes, uh, Mel jo uh, Thad Lewis or Thad Jones. Yeah, all of that, all of them. And, you know, I even went to some some uh, these camps, clinic camps where uh, those those bands were and the, and, the, and the personnel were giving clinics and saw all of them, Stan Kenton, Maynard Ferguson, you know, everybody. Um, and and so and Buddy and, and then. I found out about, you know, miles later, a little later, but it was like Charlie Parker. So, so by that time, by the time I'd gone through junior high and high school, I, you know, I was pretty ensconced in jazz, but, but I also loved rock and roll. Like I loved Zeppelin. I loved all of it, all of it, every bit of it. But, but really, I think the, the earliest stuff was the Beatles and Motown and a lot of R and B and soul music that was on the radio were some of my earliest influences and it just kind of branched out from that. So and, you are know, you, are you pretty jazz literate? I think so. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. But why is it thinking about somebody like you? Why is it that as amazing as you are, um, that you can't play like John Bonham and you can't, I know you can imitate, you can't really play like him and you can't play like the drummer in church. You know, that's that. Why is that? You know, that's that's one of those close, but you can't actually do it the way they do it. It's just their personalities. I think I think. I, here's the thing, though, I think that nowadays. I, you know, and I, I'm going out on a limb saying this because I've been saying this. I've said this before, but things are a little bit more homogenous. And sometimes it's harder for me to tell people apart. Whereas back then I can yeah. tell everybody apart and I don't, and I can't, that's one of the big mysteries to me is I could hear like, you know, uh, Gad, Jeff, Harvey, Kellner, oh. 
all of them playing the same simple beat, uh -huh. the same simple four four beat. Yeah, and I could tell them apart instantly. So how do you? How does that work? You know, yeah. but but it does. And for that matter, you you I can imitate. We can imitate each other, but it's just people's personalities come out so strong. And and you know when Bonham, you know when he passed away, I had so much respect that Zeppelin said, "This is it, no more," because he was such an integral part. You know, it's like whereas now it's it's a little more corporate. It's like oh, you know, so and so died. I'll get somebody, and you know, as long as we got the front man, we're good. You know, and, yeah. and we got sponsors, so whatever. It's, yeah, it's kind of feels that way to me now. And um, but but that's yeah. a great question. You know, in in the same. I mean, I do. It's not a diss question. It's just it's yeah. a fact. You know, it's just yeah. a, but like I can't play like David Page. I can imitate him, but I can't play like him. Yeah, we just all have our own. That's the beauty of our own voices. You know, I mean, we've all been yeah. imitated and trying to imitate other people, and I think that's good. Like I've tried to imitate all these people and, and I learned from it. And yeah. in, in somehow you, you, you can integrate the best parts you integrate what you love about them without sounding like them. Like, and, and I can, I could say, well, here's what I got from such and such. Here's what I got from such and such. And this guy and that guy, like Harvey, for example, I always thought that he had a, an amazing nuanced hi-hat, uh, touch and the way he integrated the hi-hat same for gadson and um you know just, oh. just focusing on that one element alone you know um, and then what about jeff we should give him a little uh oh, shout out he had the most amazing time feel all across the board and that's another mystery it, you know it's like it's just to me that's their spirit coming out and his heart was was as big as la you know <laughs> i mean he had the yeah. biggest heart and it and it showed in his playing as it was just i mean there will never be an, another like him and you know I mean, to me he never got to see the stuff that i got to see either from playing on i probably hundreds of sessions with him where he he just do two takes that he'd walk literally he would walk wow including the jp morgan album no kidding just walk because yeah. he knew he got it it's like right. it's, we're done we're done and yeah. right on you but know. you work for the producer you're not the producer you're the drummer i know i, I, I know care. but you know what maybe he thought he was showing them something because he knew who knows you know but but you know if you were producing then okay maybe you were like wait hang on jeff you know where you going you know yeah um, <laughs> it must have been hilarious or infuriating i don't know which one? Yeah, well, a little bit of both. <laughs> a little bit of both, but it kept you on your toes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's hilarious, man. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, wow. I mean, uh, I was going to ask you something now. I just I got off track because I was talking about myself. But um, Well, I, I'd like to pull you <laughs> back and forth, you know, a little there's bit. There's so much, uh, you know, that I can, I mean, when you're talking about, oh, I sat down and at the piano and I thought, you know, I played my eight or nine hits and thought, is this, is this all I got? <laughs> no, you just had a memory lapse. I mean, it, well, it's vast. The, the body of work that you did is so vast that. But it's, uh, you know, I'm not included in a lot of conversations of when they talk about the great record producers. You know, I mean, I, you know, there's just so many like George Martin and, uh, you know. I, I find that hard to believe. I, I, well, I, I do. That's just my insecurities. I think so. <laughs> You know, you're yep. you're Mount Rushmore, definitely. I've taken a new challenge on, which I don't know if you and I talked about when we worked together uh, recently, but um, I wrote a Broadway musical. And oh, we opened, I didn't know this. So, called Boop, Betty Boop. And wow. uh, it's going to open on Broadway in 2025, so in a year. Great. And it, great experience. And uh, we had a great run in Chicago, learned a lot. We're tweaking. We're writing a couple of new songs. And uh, it's been an amazing process. I, a, a crappy process as well, because, um, like I told you, making records is a dictatorship. I mean, it's not a democracy, but a little Freudian slip. Uh, but <laughs> but doing Broadway play, yeah. uh, you're the man of the totem pole, and you're the composer. So I mean, the director has he's in charge. So it was a little bit of a an adjustment for me. But uh, yeah, it's it's been a great experience for me. And it's called Boop. You said Boop. Boop. Oh, Betty music. Boop. Yeah, a Betty Boop. Yeah. Amazing. So speaking of which. You know, the director of, had you ever, you, uh, I'm saying almost fire, but, but did you ever consider pursuing more movie soundtracks or 
was that something that just was kind of, you know, ancillary or incidental to you? Um, I did pursue it for a bit, you know, St. Elmo's Fire, uh, the first, that was the first movie I scored. And I remember clearly, um, <clears throat> I had never done it before, so I had no clue what I was doing, but I came, I come up with that little, uh, dun, 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 and I realized that it could work slow and fast and medium. And I thought, I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Can I use that more than once in the movie? So I called Tom Scott, who I love, who was so nice to me when I first moved to LA out of people that were not nice, but he was so great, not knowing anything about me. Um, and he said, man, if you found a melody that works throughout the movie, you're way ahead of the game. And he was right. So that movie did well. And the album sold a couple of million and had the hit songs from it and including my own uh, instrumental hit. And the movie was hit. Then I did uh, a movie called Secret of My Success. I thought, hey, this is pretty easy. And uh, it was okay, but it wasn't great. Then I did about three movies that were truly not great. And that's when I realized that I would rather write songs for movies than score them for two reasons. One, I wasn't that good at scoring. I got lucky with San Fire. But two, and more importantly, um, people that write songs for movies get a lot more credit than people that score movies, for the most part, unless you're Hans Zimmer or John Williams. And so writing a song for a movie, you get a bigger bang for your buck. So I've written um, a lot of songs for movies, but the scoring stopped. Very, very, not... very, very, wow, okay. Yeah, efficient, right? Yeah, I was just about to say that again, the efficient, pow. And so, so uh, how, how did you cultivate your business sensibilities about that sort of thing? I mean, because, you know, when you just come into that and you're into that world, there's, there's a lot to learn. For me, as a sideman, I, I didn't have to think about publishing contracts and, you know, all that sort of, it, it gets kind of hairy, you know, and, um, you know, or is that something that you just found trusted people that you could work with that that you could trust that did all that for you? I mean. Yeah, I I, um, I would admit to you that I, in that for a lot of my life, I enjoyed hanging out with successful people that weren't in the music business more than successful people that were in the music business. I found um, I found them more stimulating to me because I already sort of had the music thing covered. So I'm not really going to learn anything from another piano. I could maybe learn something, but um, so I always was more stimulated by sitting with somebody like Bill Gates or, or something like that if I had the chance um, than, than another piano player or a guitar player. <clears throat> Um, and I regret it now a little bit because when I was at, at dinner with Jay Graydon and Steve Lukather the other night, and I realized that they had kept up their friendship for all these years. And I was like an outsider at the dinner because I hadn't kept up my friendship with them, even though I was close to them in the, in the eighties. And I was a little bit uh, disappointed in myself that I hadn't spent more time with the people that, that I really grew up with, you know, but you know. Having said that, it is what it is now. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, if if you're reconnecting, it's yeah, it's a good thing. And sometimes and it was. a lot of a lot of great friendships are like you just pick up right where you left off, you know. And, and Steve, look at their God. I mean, I I I I came across him when he was 17, and he was just as you know a beast. And yeah. he did. We wrote um, "Talk to You Later" for the Tubes. We wrote "She's a Beauty" for the Tubes. I love that a, record. Yeah, and he played a lot of that record. Uh, he played the solo on Hard to Say I'm Sorry, which was a number one record for Chicago. Yeah. He played the solo by Alice Cooper, top 10 single. He, uh, I mean, he was a big, big help to me. I mean, he was a, somebody that would just come in and like a, an, on a tear. And yeah, I, I yeah. assume still that way. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So, so I mean, you, you, it must have been a kick working with the tubes. It had to be. Uh, it was great. And and you probably know those guys or do you? Do you know Fee? I I don't know them, but I I met them once on a gig that 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 I was on with them. Yeah, yeah. It's it's I've never been that great with bands, although I've had a lot of success with bands like Chicago and Earth, Wind and Fire and the Tubes. But you know, the, every band has its weak and strong players. And again, efficiency. It's like I don't want to sit here for four hours when you can't play the part. I'm just going to get somebody that can. And that, of course, is annoying to a band. And so half the Tubes loved me, and half of them hated me. And the same with Chicago. Mm, mm. But again, the results are the results. Yeah, yeah, it is what it is. Yeah, I understand. 
Um, I, I know why Chicago was pissed off. I, I get it because I changed their sound. Um, they were at an all-time low when I came along. And Peter and I, Peter Satir and I, you know, we locked well. We wrote all the songs. I, would, I played bass on everything. I played keyboards on everything. And, you know, it just sort of took over like an arrogant young little prick. And <laughs> it was a dictatorship. And I get why to this day they're pissed off. They, they like the fact they still have a career with those songs. But I, I completely understand why they're not really that happy with me. You know? Well, I don't, I don't so, yeah, it's a tough thing to say. Yeah. Because it's efficiency, but then you got those songs and you know, yeah. the, the rest is history. And whew, yeah, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to touch that one, but I'll just, I'll accept, yeah. I'll accept what Move you're on. saying with grace. Thank you. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I, I hear you loud and clear, you know? Um, but, but yeah, I, it, it's bands, boy. Yeah. That's a, that's a weird one. I mean, I've, I've actually, I've ghosted on stuff and had to come in and, oh man, it's just, it's. And then you meet the drummer, like, yeah, like, oh, hey, God. in my record. Yeah. You know, it's, 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 uh, it's kind of heart wrenching and, but you know, we've all been replaced and replaced other people. And sure. What? Yeah. I mean, Robbie Buchanan used to love to tell me that he replaced my piano part on, uh, the intro of just once for, uh, James Ingram. <laughs> what? I always thought that was me. <laughs> no, I did that, man. It's <laughs> so funny. Hey, hey you know, I'm, I'm going to throw you a curveball here. I mean, this is, I know, a cliche question. Like, what would you tell a young musician now? But seriously, in this day and age, with the way things have changed so much, you know, we, I mean, if somebody came up to you and said, Mr. Foster, I, I want to be a musician. What would you give me as advice? What should I do? Well, if he ever said, I want to be a musician, how can I be? I wouldn't, I'd tell him you'll never will be if he asked that question. But I know what you're saying is like, what can I do to get into the biz or whatever? Um, it's probably the same advice you would give is that, um, you know, um, not power, knowledge is power. And if you're going from the bedroom to the stage with your computer, it's fine and it can work. Again, because to be a great record producer, as I, as I said, um, you only have to have a great love of music, in my opinion, and think like the common man. So that's why these producers, young producers come along and they, they get a five-year bite at the Apple uh, without really playing anything. And they're just all about their computer and sounds and, you know, and, and it works and it's great. But imagine how much more fulfilled they'd be if they could actually play piano or play guitar, or have a working knowledge of every instrument and, and really like hone out those skills. Um, that for sure is, is missing these days, which is why music, you know, top 40 is maybe uh, a little less uh, evolved than it was 20 or 30 years ago. But I, I'm not that guy also that, and I'm riffing now, but not that guy that hates the music business. I think the music business is great. Right now. If you talk to, you know, Beyonce or Taylor Swift or Ed Sheeran or Drake, Bruno Mars, they think the music business is just perfect. They're just really happy with it. Yeah. And they should. Of course just, they, but they're they're in the they're in the top one percent. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's like what about a kid that goes well? Like you know, how am I gonna really? The, you know, for anybody else, it's like it's probably about marketing and just having some kind of raw talent that well, or developed talent that will be able to withstand the marketing hype. But but other than that, it's like well, we sell merchandise. Let's see if I if I tour, okay, I can make money touring. But what about people who don't want to tour? You know, they become DJs, okay, or like, it almost seems like there's it's so intangible now with all this streaming and you know people not getting money directly from streaming or getting very little that there's just has to be these multiple income streams just in just in order to that you know maybe twenty years ago nobody would have thought about doing you know you know yeah I mean? it's like it's a job you can buy a record and. You know, I get paid, you know, <laughs> that's yeah, it's a strange time, but it's, uh, you know, the only thing that, uh, the only thing that, uh, is constant is change. Yeah. It's constant. And, uh, and, and we, we've seen it our whole lives and, you know, we're still surviving. Yeah. All right. There you go. And, you know, on, on that, uh, no, you know, your, your two year old son, Rennie is a phenomenon. 
And for those of you who haven't seen him, you're going to see him soon because yep. I've never seen a two-year-old like this in my life. This is unbelievable. I mean, we're talking yep. about, forget about just playing in time. I mean, he's got a groove. And then when he plays Phil's, he's not just going do 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 he'll, he'll play the syncopation. Yeah. You know, just he, he thinks of that. So his sense of, of all of that, the space and it's 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 amazing it's astounding yeah. I, I said by the time he's five he's he's going to take over the world you know well but interestingly and and you're right because the thing that impresses me most most about that particular video is yeah. the thought process it's not the fact that he's playing the group that's all great all that, but the fact that he's sort of seeing the end of the song yeah you know, parts it and and the way he's he's he understands the job of a drummer yes that's Yes, the bigger picture and the role and the music and integrating himself into the music, all of that. That's those are things that oftentimes don't come to years later. A lot of people never cultivate. Because it's funny, you know, you know, Clive Davis has his uh, yeah. Grammy pre Grammy party, mm -hmm. which is a big applaud for your viewers that maybe don't know it. So it's it's, a, it's the night before the Grammys, but it's like everybody that's nominated goes. It's a you know, you turn to your left and there's Rihanna, and you turn to your right, there's Beyonce, and you look straight ahead and it's Joni. It's like it just a a stargazing night, right? Yeah. Clive Davis has reached out to me and in all, sin in all seriousness, he said, well, I'll read it to you. Hang on, if I may. <laughs> this, this this just really, really cracked me up. Um, <laughs> uh, Hi, David. Um, I hope this finds you well. I would like for Rennie to perform a duet with Sheely E at my party. Can you make this happen? Oh, that's oh definitely. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh gosh, that is so. I good. mean, that's so good. Isn't that funny? I mean, I'm not going to let that happen because for many reasons, but also because he's too underpredictable. In fact, he hasn't played that consistently since that video, and that video was a month and a half ago. He now, when he plays, he sort of he tries to play the melody to songs instead of playing the groove, and I don't understand what that is. Maybe, so maybe he'll be a pianist or something else. Yeah, maybe. But so, like for we, we I, I, I get him to play Santa Baby because I've taught him how to go. Tss, tss, yeah, yeah. Right, and he'll start out with the the swing group, and then he'll go. And he starts playing the melody on the drums instead of the groove. I, I don't know if that's progress or regress. I think it's but pretty it, cool. It's, it's, it's not a groove though. I don't know. Yeah, he's he's getting going into his avant garde thing now. He's getting melodic. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, he's too, you know, so yeah. it's like, it's insane. I, I know. I, it's just really exciting. I mean, you've got to be over the moon. It's like, you know, that that's a whole thing, this, the nature versus nurture, and Apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And, I mean, I think that the, at the end of the day, <clears throat> you know, look, I mean, we can be whatever we want, but I'm, I'm not going to be Michael Jordan. Like, I mean, there's got to be a limit on that. But at the same time, you know, it's like people will say, well, you know, you, you, if you work hard enough at it, <laughs> yes, but you can't demean the, the, the role of raw talent. In my opinion, it's like no, lion, lions don't give birth to fish. There you go. There you go. There you, you go. go. And his last name is Foster. So there you go. You know, we'll see. Was it's fun. And <laughs> yeah, it's great. It's for me. Yeah. I wish, it, I wish it was piano so I could teach him. So I can't teach him anything on the drums. He's learned it all by just watching Jr. Who you know on the road. Yeah, yeah. Neil Peart. He watches Neil Peart videos. I've shown him your video uh, of um, you're on the list too of uh, <laughs> playing the Buddy Rich thing. It's you and is it Weckle and, and Steve, Steve Gadd? Yeah, I've shown him that video a few times. Cool. And, and he's kind of into Neil Peart is his guy. That's great. his guy. Great, great, awesome. That's so yeah. great, man. Well, I mean, you know, we can go on and on. I'm, I just want to, David, I want to thank you for your time and, uh, and, and just, you know, for your camaraderie and your friendship over the years and your support and just, I'm, I'm honored to, to call you friend as well. And, um, Twice, man. you know, my wife said to me, by the way, how is Miriam? Is she good? She's doing well. Thank you. You know, thank you for asking. She says a big hello. And I'm uh, saying that my, my wife said to me today, um, she said, gosh, you really, you really want to do this. You just had surgery and you're not feeling that good i said you know I, I i'm honored and i'd do anything for Vinny, and i really mean that man i'm so happy to be on your show and uh i hope you'll have me back again oh, oh i love it david and 
you know, whatever I can do for you, I'm at your service. And please tell, tell Catherine, thank you for, for lending you to me, you know, William, buddy. Yeah. Thanks man. Yeah. And thank everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And, um, Thank you, the great David Foster, for, for this uh, being on this episode. And thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Breakfast with Vinny.